If you can stand to your feet with your Bibles in your hand. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, don't worry, don't fret. We uh, have the scriptures uh, that will be displayed on the screen. If you turn your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 through 10. So we continue our series in stewardship. 1 Timothy, it's in the New Testament, chapter 6. Today we're going to key in in verses 6 through 10. I just want to welcome all of our guests. I'm so glad to see you all here this morning. and I pray that the Holy Spirit would draw your heart closer to Jesus. And for those who this is just new to and you don't have a relationship with Jesus or maybe you're exploring the faith, you are welcome. I want you to just relax and prayerfully learn about what the Bible has to say about Jesus and, and the power that he gives us to live. Amen. And what you hold in your hand or what you see in the screen is not man's words. It's not something that some people just got together to write in order to work out their own agenda. We as Christians believe that it is the very word of God, written by man, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let's go to the word. The precious, true, wonderful word of God. It reads, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You may be seated in the name of Jesus. We're so excited a couple Fridays ago to be able to take our children to the circus. As you all know, Cogere. Uh, children's Hospital, they uh, put on a, a grand circus that was here in Louisville, and it was really a, a fantastic event. And as we drove to the circus, I just can reflect on the excitement of my heart on a Friday morning to spend that time with the family, to relax, and to take our kids to see elephants, to see some magic, to see some aerial uh, Spectacular things happen. And as we pulled in and got our seats, it truly was a circus. <laughs> Kids were off the chain, amen. <laughs> but then we sat down and we looked at the stage and we saw some fantastic things. Within a 15-minute span, we saw elephants. We saw lions jump through rings. As the show continued on, we saw some of the greatest magic I have ever seen. It was at one point that me and my wife looked at each other and we started thinking, now wait a minute, some demonic activity might be going on here. <laughs> and we were just doing our best throughout the show to, to enjoy the time. But you know, it wasn't as enjoyable as it could have been. As my kids quickly got distracted. As we were looking at the stage and seeing these elephants and all of these wonderful animals, my kids took their attention off the center stage and they began to look around. And I remember the first thing that my daughter said was, Dad, what is that? I turned around and it was a kid. He had a glow-in-the-dark sword and he was just swinging. 
I said, sweetie, it looks like a glow-in-the-dark sword. She said, can I have one of those? I said, no. Now let's pay attention to the center stage. Look at that animal. Look at that elephant. And then she went on and said, Dad, what? Is that popcorn? Does that kid have popcorn? And then Josiah got in the mix. It's like, Dad, look at that spinny thing. That thing is spinning. It's glowing. Can we have one of those? Y'all, focus. There's a lion on the stage jumping through a ring of fire. Look. And one of them said, oh, my dad, that's cotton candy. (laughs) We've got to have some cotton candy. (laughs) And as we're sitting there, my wife and I trying to enjoy the circus, we begin to feel anxious and and, and began to feel like maybe this was a, a bad mistake. Maybe we should not have brought our kids here as they just began to look each and every way and, and whine and complain and say, we want this, we want this, we want this. And we're saying, no, all we need to do is focus on the center stage. That's all we need to do. I remember at one point <laughs> looking at Nia and I said, now listen, okay? Daddy and Mommy went through a lot to get you here. <laughs> and we really were, was looking forward to having a good time. And all we need today to have a good time is each other and the center stage. <laughs> but it didn't work. We actually left early <laughs> and had a talk with our children later on about learning to be grateful for what's set in front of us. And I wish that I could stand before you and say that's just a problem for my children. But I don't like to lie in church, amen? I don't like to lie, period. It's not. It's a human heart. It's a problem that I I constantly have to to, to search and and look for in myself because because sometimes I I can just be so easily distracted. Sometimes we can can stop looking at what God has provided for us and his goodness and what we have before us, and we can just begin to look around us at other people and other things that's shining. Our attention span and our contentment is often so low. How easily distracted we are when we can stop, and if we would only stop and think about it. Distraction shows up in many ways in our lives. Sometimes it shows up through just doubt and debt. We begin to doubt God's goodness, and the next thing we know is we try to make stuff happen. And we find ourselves in just a a whole lot of debt. According to Randy Alcorn, in 2010, the statistics show that the average American family had about $8,000 of credit card debt. And I think that is a sign of American culture and our discontentment. Because a lot of times, consumer debt and credit card debt, it it points us to the fact that we're not patient and we want things that we can't afford. And rather than look at what God has done and how God has provided, we, we get distracted and we begin to look at everyone else. We see shiny cars or big houses or this fabulous life of the rich and famous that's before us on television. And before we know it, we're drowning in debt. And then we not only drown in debt, but we get delusional about it. We begin to say stuff like, well, everybody's in debt. This is just the way life is. Or we get even the more delusional. And we begin to say stuff like, you know what? There was a sale yesterday. And the original, the item was $100 originally, but I got it for $70. I saved money. We, we, we get so distracted that we become delusional because you cannot save money by spending money. We didn't save money, we spent money. And many times we spent money that we did not have, so we're borrowing it from something that was a necessity that we were supposed to pay for. We get delusional. We begin to, to say things like that. We get delusional. 
And we begin to believe that this is normal. This is how God created us to live in the midst of this world. We think deals are something that we should just run after because it's simply a deal. But here's something. It's not a deal if you can't afford it. It's not a deal if it's going to cause you to break biblical principles in order to have it. And as we look at today's sermon, we see that the Apostle Paul is going to really teach us a valuable lesson, and it's this. Contentment in Christ is the bedrock of Christian stewardship. Contentment in Christ is the bedrock of Christian stewardship. That's what I want you to go home today realize. As we've talked about stewardship up until this point, we've, we've talked about powerful principles of stewardship. We, we answered the question of what does God want us to, to do with our money and, and how should we give back to the Lord. But today we want to understand that all of the things that we've talked about up until this point will not work and will not uh, go forth in our lives if we don't realize that contentment comes from being satisfied in Christ. And that's our foundation. The word contentment that we see in our text today that Paul uses repeatedly, according to the culture of that day, if they had heard that Paul without that word without hearing Paul's preaching before, they would have thought of Self-satisfaction. To be content means to be satisfied or self-contained. It's something that you can make yourself do. It's something that you just have to bear down and and think hard enough about and, and work hard enough to get to. But Paul was really flipping this notion of contentment upside down, and especially for his protege, Timothy, and those he was writing for. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 through 13, we see that that Paul has a different picture of contentment. Paul knows that we will not find contentment in ourselves. That contentment will not happen by us just trying harder or putting things in place to make us more content. Paul knew that contentment really happened as a result of two things. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 through 13, Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So even before Paul writes Timothy as uh, Timothy is in Ephesus, even before he writes him, I'm sure Timothy had heard him preaching and talking about contentment. So he's not thinking of just this, this self-satisfaction, this, 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 this characteristic that you have to just work hard to have. No, he tells us two things in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 through 13. He says, number one, contentment is learned. He says, I've had to learn to be content. It's not something that happens overnight. We have a beautiful and sovereign God who loves us so much that he helps us to become content by orchestrating trials and tribulations and situations that teach us that as Christians, what we need most is is not more things or or not self-strength, but what we need most is Christ. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 through 13. He says, I've learned to abound, I've learned to have much, and I've learned to have very little. And then he tells us the secret to contentment, the secret to life, he says, is Christ. It is Christ who gives me strength. So even as we move forth through the rest of this sermon, I don't want you to hear me saying, as you leave this place, that you have to just try super hard to be content. But rather, I want you to hear me say that contentment comes from you pursuing an intimate relationship with Jesus. 
That as we see Jesus through the scripture and as we pray to Jesus and talk to him and and communicate with him, we will see his beauty and he will shape us and change us and make us more content. In fact, that's exactly what Paul does here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 uh, through verse 13, really verse up to verse 14, he points us to Jesus in pursuing him. Verse 11 says, but as for you, O man of God, talking to Timothy, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. He tells us to pursue these characteristics. Now, we may look at that and say, oh, my goodness, that just seems so hard. How do I pursue all of these things? You pursue these things by pursuing a person, and that's Jesus. Saying, pursue these things. And then he lets us know in verse 12 that pursuing these things will not be easy. He says, fight the good fight of faith. It's going to be hard. It's hard to pursue Jesus. It's hard to stay focused on that center stage when there's so much distractions around us. But through Christ, we can. And I wish we had time just to walk you through verse 12 through 14 as Paul lifts up Jesus and uses some very devotional language in order to get us to see that who we are pursuing is better than anything that this world has to offer. Paul wants us to know that contentment in Christ is the bedrock of Christian stewardship. Here in 1 Timothy... Paul is writing to Timothy, who is his protege, his mentee. And in chapter 1, verse 3, he really lets Timothy know why he's writing to him. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. So he's letting him know that, Timothy, I left you in Ephesus in order that you would help the church to be able to spot out false teachers and so that the church would know the true gospel, good news of Jesus Christ. I've left you there so that you can make sure things are straight. And then we get to chapter 6 after Paul deals with many things as he's talking to Timothy, this this young preacher. After he deals with many other subjects, he comes back to the subject of false preachers and false teachers. In chapter 6, we see that Paul lets Timothy know that there are some false ministers among the church. And he describes these ministers as having two things. Number one, he says they have an unhealthy craving. They have an unhealthy craving, and they specifically have an unhealthy craving for dissension and division. They will argue about things that don't matter. But second, he says, they have a desire, and their desire is to use Christianity and their platform to get rich. Their desire is to use godliness for gain. Look at your Bibles. Look at what he has to say in verse 5. He says, and there is constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Then he goes on. But godliness with contentment is great gain. He says there are preachers among you who are using their pulpit in order to become wealthy and rich. He says godliness with contentment is great gain. He doesn't say godliness with capital or godliness with celebrity is great gain. In essence, these ministers, these preachers were like the the TV show, the pimps of L.A., I mean the preachers of L.A., They were looking to to live lavish lifestyles and have their best life now. 
Wu-Tang Clan used to have a song called Cream. A rap group. <laughs> like, Wu-Tang who? <laughs> and, that, and that Cream, it was an acronym that says, Cash Rules Everything Around Me. And unfortunately, we have many preachers who pimp God's people because they have a mindset that doesn't say Christ rules everything around me, but cash rules everything around me. And unfortunately, we have Christians who, even though their lips say Christ rules everything around me, we often live as if cash rules everything around us because we're willing to cut people short, to use bad business practices, to gamble what God has given us, in order to make more for selfish gain. Paul is saying, no, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great Real quick, let's look at three practical things that we must remind ourselves of if we're going to be content in Christ. Three practical things that we see in this text that we have to constantly remind ourselves of if we are going to find contentment in Christ. The first is this. God wants you to remember the difference between, I'm sorry, God only allows our bodies to go to heaven. God only allows our bodies to go to heaven. That's the first thing we want to see in today's text. God only allows our our bodies to go to heaven. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great, Cain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Can't take anything out of the world. Paul points us to the fact that God only allows our bodies to go to heaven, to go into eternity. We can't, we can't take the things that we work so hard for here on earth with us. Job chapter 1. Job is in the Old Testament. I love how his story opens up. Listen to these words. Job chapter 1, verse 2. There was born to him, Job, seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. A man named Job in the Old Testament was rich. He was balling. He had all of these great things. And then you know, those who are familiar with the story from verse 4 up until verse 19, we read about how all of these things that Job had was taken away. And it was taken away under God's watch. God allowed them to be taken away. He allowed Satan to afflict Job. But Job doesn't know that. And then in verse 20, we read these words from Job. After all had been taken away, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job had an understanding that when he died, he was going to have the same thing that he came into this earth with. And that's nothing. And as we fight to pursue Jesus and look to be content, we have to remind ourselves constantly that the things that the world is chasing for will not last forever. They will only last for a short, fleeting time. I once was a rich man who had died. And at his funeral, a gentleman that he knew went up to uh, one of his close friends. And he says, man, I, I know that he was really wealthy and, and really rich. He had all of these investments and he had all of these things going on for himself. How much, tell me, how much did he leave behind? And his friend looked at him and said, how much did he leave behind? He said, yeah, how much did he leave behind? 
says everything. Because when we die, we leave everything behind. When was the last time you saw a, a funeral line with a hearse that was followed by a home and behind that followed by a bank vault and behind that followed by the fleet of cars that the person had? You've never seen it. But yet we live as if the things that we are pursuing, as if they are going to last forever. But when, Psalm 146, when, our, when we take our last breath, we depart the earth with nothing. Absolutely nothing. It was Jesus who said, the life is not about the abundance of one's possessions. And we've got to remember that as we are constantly pushed through advertisement and constantly, uh, uh, Satan is constantly trying to trick us to think that life is about the abundance of possessions, but it's not. So I just want to encourage, to this, encourage you, my brother, who is working hard to provide for your family, to, to, to not be delusioned and to not be distracted and to not think that, that the most important thing that you can do for your family is provide them with an extravagant lifestyle. If, if that's what you believe and if that's what you're working hard for, you are missing the stage in front of you. Your kids don't have to have the best clothes. You don't have to work multiple jobs to keep up with the Joneses. God has not created you for that. The best thing that you can give your family the best person that you can give your family is Jesus. Jesus is the only person, the only thing that we can obtain that will not be taken away. In fact, Paul tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. What is this great gain? In chapter 4, he lets us know what this great gain is. He's very clear in verse number Seven, he says, have nothing to do with irreverence, silly myths, rather train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the future life and also for the life to come. He's saying, don't pursue, he tells Timothy, don't pursue a buff body. Pursue a buff relationship with Jesus. Don't make being in shape. Your, your greatest goal. Make knowing Jesus your greatest goal. Because that is the only thing that is profitable in both this life and the next. Only your body's going to go to heaven or hell. Second, God wants you to remember the difference between a need and a want. There's a difference between a, a need and a want. Get your Bibles. Verse 8. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. What I like about Paul is, is as he's training Timothy to have the right perspective of stewardship and to live as a gospel minister... He is setting the example for himself. You know, Paul didn't live this, this lavish lifestyle, and even though he had a right to take from churches as he ministered and preached, we know that often he took up an outside job. He was a, a tent maker. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we read, Paul saying these words, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. It's different from the false preachers, different from the false teachers that's around. He says, we're not preaching to, to flatter you. We're not preaching to please you. We are preaching a pure gospel that has been entrusted with us. We are managers of this gospel. Verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, 
nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor do we see glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become Dear to us, verse 9, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim the gospel of God. So Paul is writing Timothy and he's telling Timothy, listen, man, you're only going to be able to take your body to heaven. And you're only going, and you really need to know the difference between a, a want and a need. You, you need to understand that God has not placed us as ministers on the gospel in this earth to, to be able to profit from God's people, but he has placed us on this earth so that we can powerful pre, powerfully preach the, the message of the cross. And he's shown by example, if that means that the people among you, if they, they don't feel comfortable providing for you, or if, or if you think that they have a wrong perspective, these false teachers are making them think that everybody is out for money, go get a job, go, go work. But remember that all you need is the necessities of life to be happy and to be satisfied. These necessities says, we have food and we have clothing. And with that, we're content. With that, we're content. Our culture makes it hard to be content. Many of us in here, we, we have these things met. We have clothing, we have food, we have a, a place to lay our heads, but inside we are raging. We are upset with God. We think that he has somehow abandoned us because we're not able to live the lifestyle we think we deserve. Because we don't have maybe what, what a sibling has or, or what a friend has. And, and, and then we come and we question our relationship with God. Maybe God, maybe I'm not right with God. Maybe God really doesn't love me because I, didn't have, I don't have what other people have. God does not exist to, to make your dream list come true. God has not saved you. He's not saved me so that we can live the most lavish life that we can on earth. No, God has saved us as his people so that we can know Jesus and be transformed to look more like him. He has saved us as his people so that we can go out into a dying world and tell them about a living Savior. God has paid the biggest debt and the biggest price that could ever be paid by allowing his own son to die for you and to die for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life no matter what you have in your bank account or what you have in your pockets. If you are a believer, and if you set your eyes on Jesus, you can find contentment and joy in the fact that God loved you enough to allow his own son to be murdered for you when he could have stopped it. I think our mission, and as Christians, is often hindered because we are distracted by shiny stuff rather than by a bleeding Savior. So, for some of us, it's, it is challenging to just be content with marketing and with the way maybe we were raised and with the things that we desire and want. And we can find ourselves just being maybe impulsive buyers. Some of you may say, man, I've just got a, an addiction with shoes. I've got an addiction with sports gear. And I just want to encourage you to, to, to look to Jesus, but, and as you look to Jesus, put some practical biblical things in place so that you won't be so impulsive. That will help to remind you that God has already provided you with what you need. Maybe before you go to the store and, 
and just buy something because it's on sale and you think that you just have to have it. I just want to encourage you to do a few things. Number one, I want to encourage you to just leave a store. Just don't hold it. Just look good in my kitchen. Right? Don't take pictures of it. Right? Don't go home and look on other stores to see if this is the best price out. If things are tight, leave the store. Number two, go home and pray for wisdom. Seek God's face. Seek his will. Number three, wait a couple days. A lot of times we just buy stuff on the spot, then we put ourselves in a hole, and then we borrow it from somebody else. And then we're saying, Lord, if only you will give me a better job or better means. Wait a couple days. And then ask yourself some, 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 some questions. One, have, I, have I been generous in my giving? Before I just buy this thing that is a want and not a need, have I been generous in giving? Have I been generous in giving to my church? Have I been generous to giving to other Christians? Have I been generous to giving to the poor? Do I really need another stainless steel pot? Do I really need another golf club? Do I really need another pair of jeans? Have I been generous? Next I will say, ask the question, what is my motive in getting this? Even if I have been generous, what is the motive? Am I simply about to buy this item because I want it to glorify me? As I think about this item and I'm imagining myself in it and receiving praise from other people, what is my motive? Am I going to use this item? And in buying this item, is this going to help me to bring glory to God? Is it going to help me to show him off or to show me off? Next I say, ask the question, how is this helping me fulfill my mission on earth? How is this helping fulfill my mission on earth? Now, some things, as we go through this, these questions and as we go through these thoughts, you know, I mean, I, I don't want us to be legalistic and say I can never buy anything for myself and I can never enjoy anything. Some, some, some things are, are good. Sometimes it's good to buy things that are more luxurious if we can afford it because it can help us relax or it can communicate to our spouse that we love them. Or communicate to another family that we, we care for them. But what I'm saying is we need to use wisdom and seek God's will. And that we need to recognize that we don't need it. What we need is food, a roof over our head, and a place to lay our head. I want to... The blessed things about Forest Baptist Church is you, you have people here who want to help you and who actually need you to help them. And we can experience that help and we can help others as we live in community with them. And that's why I'm excited about community groups. That after Sunday morning, after we preach the word, after we hear that challenge, that throughout the week, we get to go and in people's homes and we get to talk about the sermon again and we get to confess sin. We get to say in a, in a comfortable environment with our brothers and sisters in Christ that I am distracted. I'm not focused on a stage. These shiny things are, are getting my, my, my attention. Can, can someone pray with me? Can you ask me uh, next week and a week after for a couple of months how I am doing in that area of stewardship? God has given us each other to help each other. But some of us, we're struggling to, to honor God with our possessions, to honor God with our time, to honor God with our talent because we are rogue, we are solo, we're by ourselves, and we're trying to live this Christian life alone. And God has not created us and saved us to live it alone but in community. And we come up with all kinds of excuses. I don't trust people. You don't understand. People burn me. 
Well, remember, you serve a Savior who was burned. You serve a Savior who had been betrayed. You serve a Savior whose disciples and friends that he spent three and a half years with turned their back on him at the most critical time of his life. But that Savior, because he was more focused on God's will than his own emotions and self, after he was raised from the dead, went back into community. And he showed them his scars. And those scars set them on fire for the mission of God. Let God use your scars. Share your scars with others. And remind people that you, remind yourself that you serve a Savior who knows what it's like to be betrayed. But who did not let that stop him from loving you. Stop making it about you. And may God give me the grace and stop making life about me. It's not about us. If God has saved you, he saved you for something bigger and better than you. You're part of a kingdom that is on mission. It's nothing better than a a changed life. And we get to be a part of God using us to change other people's lives. But if we're focused on our surroundings, rather than our Savior, we won't get to experience that joy. And our Savior was full of joy. Our Savior was the most content human being that has ever walked the face of the earth. Little children ran to him by the droves. People wanted to be around him. Why? Because he had stuff? No. Because he was connected to the Father and he was living life how God created us to live it in communion with him. What uh, can attract people the most is not what we have and not our personalities and who we are, but what can attract people the most is a surrendered life to the will of God. That's where contentment is found. That's where joy is found. In communion with God. Joy is found when you meet someone who has little of nothing, but they've got a smile from one cheek to the other. And you look at them and you say, man, your life is rough and it's tough and you you don't have a lot. How are you so? Well, let me tell you about a man named Jesus. Do you have that joy? That comes from understanding that life is not about our wants. It's about being grateful for how God is meeting our needs. And telling other people about his goodness. Last, God and gold don't mix well together. Paul stresses to Timothy that God and gold, a love for gold, don't mix well together. Look at this. This is absolutely astonishing what, what we're about to read. In just a few verses, the language that Paul is about to use to get this point across to his mentee is is shocking. Listen to this. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many things. Look look at what he says. He said, desiring to be rich, craving to be rich, having an unhealthy uh, 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 predisposition towards wealth. He says, it is a snare. It is senseless. It is harmful. It plunges people to ruin. It's destructive. It's evil. It's evil. He's saying these false teachers, these false preachers, this is what they're living for. And then they're trying to tell you about Jesus and the good news. He says, no, it's evil. It's evil. Ever talk to someone who is completely consumed with the lottery? $20 $20 a week from scratch-offs. 
looking for numbers everywhere. That's my number. That's my number. 742.45, that's my number. I had a dream last night. It was four numbers. 1126, that's my number. Come to church, praise the Lord, and you look at their life, there's no mission, there's, there's no drive towards Jesus. It's because this pursuit of wealth and believing the lie that hitting these numbers and, and getting millions is going to satisfy us, it will not satisfy. Have you done a study? Have you researched people who, who hit the lotto and how quick they, they waste it all? How miserable they end up? Have you looked on television at celebrities and athletes after the limelight is gone and after the money is gone, how dry they are? And while they have it, there's a reason why people who, who often are, are rich and finding their identity and their wealth are miserable and addicted. It's because those things don't satisfy. And Paul is warning Timothy that it is a snare, it is a trap, it is senseless, it is harmful, and it plunges people into ruin. People who are all about money, they are shysty. Atrocities happen because someone is focused, so focused on being rich that their heart is no longer compassionate about other people. It's atrocities done in this country in the name of money that's being done every day. He says it is a root of all evil, meaning that it may not be your root of evil, but it is a root of evil. Paul also wants him to know, but with that in mind, riches aren't necessary. Being rich isn't evil. But allowing your riches to own you is. It numbs our heart towards God. That's why I love the, the prayer in Proverbs chapter 30. Of a, a guard. He, he says, Lord, don't give me too much money. At least my heart, paraphrasing here, be cold towards you. But don't make me poor. At least I want to, at least I go out and need to rob someone. But he says, you give me what I need. That should be all of our prayer. Lord, you know me better than I know me. You give me what I need to be satisfied with in you. Have you prayed that prayer lately? Paul knew and had a theology of wealth. Verse 17, as for the rich in his present age, charge them not to be haughty. Chapter 6, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He's not a, a killjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and to be ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, for heaven. So those who are rich need to be rich towards God the future in mind. There's a man, close with this, by the name of Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 10. And Demas was like Timothy. He was a protege of Paul, a, a mentee of Paul's. And, and we read sad words. 2 Timothy chapter 4, around the 10th verse, we read that Demas deserted Paul for the things of the world. So at the end of Paul's life, he is lonely because there are, are men who he walked with who, who left him because they love the things of the world. It's the point that he's making here, that we cannot passionately pursue gold and God. If we do, we're going to find ourselves telling off and deserting our Savior for stuff. For stuff. I want to warn you to, to find contentment in Christ. And that contentment, it really is the bedrock. It's the bedrock of good stewardship. If you're not pursuing Jesus, and if you don't have an intimate relationship with Jesus, you will not be a good steward of what God has given. I pray that we will be like Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, we read 
that God calls Abraham and he promises Abraham to have wealth and, and, and to bless, that Abraham's going to be used to bless the nations. But Abraham does not allow that to get to him. He doesn't redirect his life and center his life around what God has promised these things. But rather he continues to pursue the Lord. And the Bible says that God blessed Abraham with riches and with wealth, but his mind was not set on those riches and wealth. His mind was set on something else. Abraham became very wealthy and, 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 and was able to have what we would call a successful life. But we read in Hebrews chapter 11 these words, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in a land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham was a wealthy man, but he did not allow his wealth to consume him or shape him. He found contentment in God. And the Bible says that rather than building a kingdom for himself on this earth, he chose to live in a tent. Why? Because his picture wasn't on the here and now. His picture was on the future. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. He was looking forward to heaven whose designer and builder is God. Are you craving for heaven? Are you craving for God? As we pursue him, may we know that God can make us content in a tent. We could be the happiest person on earth if we have Jesus. If you're looking for your happiness in the size of a television or the name of a car, you're setting yourself up for failure. Not only here, but in the future. Just stand to your feet with me as we, as we close out. As we Look to Jesus together. There's a song that I absolutely love. It's called All I Have is Christ. And as, I, as we close out, I just want us to sing a verse of that song. I once was lost in darkest night, yet th-